Hi, I'm Karina Johnson. Today I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, Matthew 26, 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. At the same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But now, during, but not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him thirty pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Well, good morning, IBC family. And good morning to our live stream family who is joining us via technology. Um, I'm going to pray for us right now, and then uh, after I pray for us, we will dig in to the word for what God has for us. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you have uh, given us this opportunity to dig into your word, to know you more fully to be transformed through your word. And even as these young people head off to also know you more fully through the word, I pray that you right now would allow us by your spirit to have receptive ears, to have receptive hearts, to not just hear, but to receive. A reception that is shown by the way in which it exudes in our life or the way it is applied in our life. So Father, even now, help us. We want to believe, help us in our unbelief. And Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to draw attention to you, to glorify you, to honor you. So work powerfully in our hearts even now, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a guy by the name of Dante Alighieri. I actually looked it up on Google exactly how to say his name because it's Italian. Dante, you might actually recognize, he was an Italian poet, a writer, a philosopher, and uh, a political thinker who was well known for works such as Dante's Inferno or the Divine Comedy. Uh, and the Divine Comedy, in fact, was considered during the Middle Ages the greatest literary work of all time. And actually, Dante's, that work was considered Italian or Italy's greatest literary work ever in the, in the history of their existence. And that is kind of the reputation that this, this, this piece, this masterpiece has even to this day. 
But it's interesting that Dante himself lived during a time uh, where there was much religious and political turmoil. There was a lot of religious and political corruption. In fact, things got so bad during the time of Dante, and and specifically in his life, that the Pope, the acting Pope at that time, kicked him out of Florence, Italy, and even burned his house so that he would have nothing to return to if he tried. And we think on one hand, when we hear about the hardships that he endured and others of similar faith, you would think, oh, poor Dante. But we see that it was, during, that it was through his hardships that, that led Dante to write the Divine Comedy, which is really centered around a man who journeys from Good Friday through Easter Sunday to visit the souls of hell and purgatory and paradise. Now Virgil, uh, a character in this story, uh, guides, guides Dante, because he's kind of the, it's a first-hand character, he guides him through hell into purgatory, and, and then Beatrice is a person who guides him through this place called paradise. And the point of all these fictional uh, encounters was to really kind of have a subtle way to expose what was actually occurring in reality. In other words, he couldn't condemn things socially, like kind of get on his soapbox per se, and so he wrote this as a way of exposing all the corruption both religiously and politically. And uh, in a kind of an allegorical sort of way, he was able to kind of let people know what is really going on, what is systemic within these different entities of society. But what, what really, um, what, what kind of helped Dante kind of navigate these, these difficult times or the way in which he was able to triumph and, and to remain faithful in spite of all the corruption and the evil around him was this. He realized that the way in which Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ were able to kind of navigate was when, not if, but when they kept their focus on eternal realities, then they were able to not get caught up or fall victim to the evil that surrounded them. This was Dante's conclusion when it was all said and done, that the way in which he was able to kind of traverse the corruption, both religiously, politically, and socially, was that as long as his, his gaze, as long as his attention was set and fixed on eternal realities, then he did not fall victim to worldly temptation. It's much like what Paul resonates in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. One particular observation that was kind of depicted in his divine comedy was the fact that Dante traveled through this place called Paradise. And he meets one of his relatives, Donna T., who tells him the reason she is so full of joy. And it's not just because she is a a resident of paradise. No, she says the reason she is so full of joy is because, as she says, in his will is our P. 
peace. In his will is our peace. And it was this phrase, in his will is our peace, that helped Dante remain faithful and not be taken out by people who were betraying one another, who were deceiving one another, who were denying one another, who were, who were destroying anyone who would ultimately stand in their way. So you think about Dante and his situation, I can't help but think how appropriate it is for the times in which we live today, right? How timely is this phrase, in his will is our peace. I believe that as we resonate or as we reflect more deeply upon that, not only does it enable us to, to navigate the growing corruption of our day, but even as we look at our text this morning, we see that this truth would be equally important for the disciples of Jesus. Now just to give you a quick context of where we're, where we're at in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that, uh, that Gospels Matthew really slows down significantly in the final three chapters. We're three chapters away. We've been in this for a long time, but we're three chapters away. And we think tend to slow down. There's a lot of key people and, and key events, specific events that really ultimately lead up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And as the next couple of chapters unfold for us, it's tempting to think or it's tempting to conclude that when you see everything transpiring, that everything is spiraling out of control. I mean, again, Jesus had a very influential ministry. And now, all of a sudden, he's in Jerusalem and people are plotting to kill him and it seems like he is losing control. A week earlier, people were singing his praises. They were saying, Hosanna to the king. And now, literally a week later, shouts of Hosanna to the king changed to crucify him. People that once pledged their allegiance and love for him were now eager to deny him and walk away. And so things go from very promising to bad to worse very quickly. And no doubt even Jesus' disciples are wondering to themselves, is Jesus really who we thought he was? Is everything that Jesus accomplished up to this point all for naught? Will the, will the Jewish leader, leaders ultimately prevail against Jesus? <laughs> Maybe more personally, have we just wasted the last three years of our life and put our lives on the line for nothing? Well, things are not always as they appear. And what we see does not always reveal what is. So what is really going on? Well, the events that transpire in the next couple of days and during this, thing, this kind of series we call Passion Week, leading up to the death of Jesus, does not mean that God has lost control or is in the process of losing control. No, what Scripture teaches is that God has always been in full control. He, that the control of God over all events and all decisions in history He's always been not just aware of, but using for his glory. 
You see, everything during this week leading up to the death of Christ is a fulfillment of God's sovereign and redemptive plan from the beginning of time. Everything that happened was foretold long ago. Peter relates this truth in Acts chapter two in his first sermon when he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He, he kind of bluntly but boldly speaks to the crowds. He says, this Jesus delivered up to the according to the definite or, or predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. In other words, the religious leaders act on their own volition. They act out of their own free will. But at the same time, their actions actually serve to fulfill what God has already predetermined to take place. And this predetermined truth is restated by what Jesus relates in verse two of our text this morning. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now this is the fourth time Jesus has foretold of his death. And obviously as, you, as we look back from our vantage point, we realize that the disciples are not getting it, right? He's told them over and over and over again. A fourth time here in this text and they still don't get it because they are confused when everything begins to happen. What's going on? But Jesus already says, I'm going to die. In fact, I'm telling you when it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen during Passover. Jesus, in other words, isn't shocked by the hostility. He's not shocked by what's going on. He already knows what's going on. But it's important to realize, even though he is being led to the slaughter, it's important to realize who's really in control. You see, the Jewish leaders tried to kill Jesus multiple times. They plotted against him multiple times and they always failed. Why? Because not, I don't think it's because they were horrible uh, conspirers or anything like that. I think they failed because they can do nothing in violation of God's redemptive will. So in one sense, in their efforts to carry out their will, like to kill Jesus, they actually are serving to carry out God's will all along. This is why Jesus will be kind of bold and blunt when he says in John 10, for example, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. We see in John 19 also, Pilate said to Jesus, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And in most cases, that would be true for Pilate. But Jesus responds to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And to drive the point even further home, we see that after Jesus foretells his death for the fourth time, we jump to a scene where finally Caiaphas, the high priest, is named for the first time, not just as high priest, but we know his name now, and everybody's gathered in his, in, in his palace, everybody's gathered in his mansion, and they are plotting, they're saying, you know what, enough is enough, this time we are not going to fail, but here's the deal, we're not gonna just plot against him, we're gonna make sure it's after the Passover, however, because we don't want a riot on our hands, right? We don't want to necessarily, we got a lot of people coming in for Passover. There's a lot of people that have pledged their allegiance to Jesus, so we don't want to unnecessarily arouse them. And so we'll wait till after Passover. 
And once again, we see that even though they plan to do this after Passover, God is in control. Because after all, Jesus says, I'm going to the slaughter at Passover. So here we have multiple times before they plan to kill Jesus and they fail and now they plan to kill Jesus after Passover and they still fail. Why? Because God is in control. Yes, they, God isn't violating their free will. They, they are acting in their own volition but they are in the same time fulfilling God's preordained plan all along. You know, one truth that instills great hope and assurance and peace for us as Christians is the conviction that God is in control. Brothers and sisters, let me just say this and let it just kind of take the necessary time to sink in. God is in control. God is still in control. Now I know as Christians we, we, can, we might acknowledge that truth. In fact, we might even, if we're honest with ourselves, we might acknowledge that truth much like this. We'll say, I know God is in control, but, right? That, that but kind of sabotages what you just acknowledged. I know God is in control, but, no, the real but is this. Do you believe it? Do you you really believe that God is in control of his creation? Do Do you believe that God is causing all things, not some things, all things, to work together for good, his good? You know, there's two doctrines that are kind of implicit but consistently taught in Scripture. And that is the doctrine of sovereignty and the doctrine of providence. And this, I'm not going to kind of turn on my seminary 101 hat for us. I'm just going to make this as simple as possible. We've discussed it before. But sovereignty and providence are implicit all throughout Scripture. And there are a lot of definitions to kind of explain what sovereignty means and, and what, what providence means. Let me just, ch- I, think, I think, I believe John Piper, of all people, surprisingly enough, has the most simplistic definition to this. And you might be wondering why I introduced John Piper that way. Most of the time, he's difficult to follow and understand. But in this case, he's actually very simple. And I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. Just read his book and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Or any of his books. But Piper says this about sovereignty. Sovereignty is the right and the power for God to do all that he decides to do. That's what sovereignty is. Sovereignty is God's right to, it's only his right, but his power to do whatever he decides to do. That's what it means to be God. He's God, we're not, right? This is what Paul speaks to in Romans chapter nine. He says, you know, in the end, we can start challenging God and put him on the, on the, uh, the kind of the, the, the seat here and basically, and, and basically convict him of all kinds of things or, or challenge him in so many ways. And Paul says this, who are you? You're the creation. I'm the, and he says, God's the creator. He could just kind of speak you out of existence as easily he spoke you into existence. 
You see, God is sovereign and there's no other, one that, no other person or being that is sovereign such as God. He has the right and the power to do all that he decides to do. But then what is providence? Though distinguished but closely related, what is providence? Sovereignty means that God has free reign to do whatever he decides in creation. Obviously, he can't deny himself, so he can't sin or promote evil. But providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. In other words, we're talking about the wisdom of God. So when God exercises his providence, we see that it, because he has the right and the power to do whatever he wants in accordance to his will, he also exercises divine or perfect wisdom at all times to exercise that will. For ultimately, for the glory of his name. In other words, absolutely everything needs to be done, that everything that needs to be done according to the will of God will be done through our free will, through our decisions, through our choices. That's how wise God is. He knows how to work through our decisions to ultimately accomplish his redemptive will. In other words, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance in life. Not when there's a God who exists. Nothing happens randomly or just happens because God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's sovereign over all his creation. Therefore, this is the conclusion that we must come to grips with in our minds Even in the midst of billions of people exercising their free will, both good and evil, over all the earth, God's redemptive plan will never be compromised or thwarted. I think it's important to let that kind of re-sink in. Because we live in restless times. And I hear it over and again how we're growing weary and and we're restless and and we're we're asking questions. God, what is going on? Everything's changing. Yep. But God has never stopped fulfilling his redemptive will. God works through our choices and decisions and even the repercussions of our decisions, both good and bad, for his will and for his purposes. As Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I can't help but personalize that for us this morning and ask the question how applicable this truth is for us, right? Right? how necessary it is to come back to this point of reference once again. Again, as I kind of already related, you know, there's a many great uh, number of brothers and sisters in Christ who are asking questions. Are, Are we experiencing symptoms of the last days? Like we're actually in the last days, not just the last days, the last 2,000 years, but actually in the last days. For those of us who live in the United States, and I know there's some that are streaming that are not in the United States, But for those of us who live in the United States, what's going on in our country? How should we make sense of everything? How how should we respond to all the changes that we don't like? I think the question that is more important for us to grapple with first is, 
What is the visible fruit of someone who believes that God is in control? What is, the, what is true about the person who is fully convinced of God's control over everything? Well, I believe that the most visible evidence of one who possesses full conviction of God's control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? It's peace. Peace is the evidence of resting in God's absolute and sovereign control. Early on in my marriage, Abby and I were visiting Chico, where she's from, and uh, there's a, a creek there. I can't remember the name of it, but what was the name of the creek that we float down? Exactly. Butte Creek. Okay, yeah, we get on the tubes and float down for hours. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, you get to these deep pools of water. There's steelhead running through it and, and trout and stuff. And you can just kind of jump in these pools. And for hours, you just be sitting. The sun is hot. The water is cold. It's just so fun. And, and we were in Butte Creek just floating down for hours. And uh, I'm not t- talking about the creek necessarily. I'm talking about when we went to go pick up our car again after we got to the end of our float trip. And because we were visiting, we actually, I actually had a, a rental car and it had the stick shift, you know, right there. Uh, not the stick shift, but it had the um, emergency brake that you can pull. And as a, I grew up in Alaska with a stick shift and a, a side emergency brake, those were very convenient to make the car do this, right? Spin, controlled, of course, right? And as a young teenager, my brother and I had lots of experience in the wintertime to do, practice our power slides, and my dad would go into the store, and we would go to the end of the parking lot. That's why I haven't gone up to our parking lot when I see the other kids doing it, because I'd be a hypocrite by stopping them, because I did the same thing. And by the way, a kid did not take out that light pole there, so don't worry about that. But I, I relate all this because... I'm take, we're just flying down this dirt road and, and there's a little pullout and, and we were kind of coming in and it was all gravel. And I'm like, oh, gravel is perfect for sliding. And so Abby, you know, she, we're just flying along and I whip the wheel around, pull the e-brake and the car just starts spinning. I'm loving it. Abby is not. <laughs> now, granted, she is related to this me over and time and time again. Aaron, I do trust you. I do trust you. But in that moment, in that ear-curdling cry, it did not communicate peace or trust. Aaron, I trust you, but not right now. Until we came to a stop on the road still. But in all reality and in all seriousness, the fact is we can very easily or quickly or um, acknowledge the, the right thing to say. We can relate the truth, right? We can say, yes, I know that God is in control. I know that he's in control of all his creation. But do you believe it? And does your life reflect that belief? Again, your belief is revealed or exposed by the peace that you experience in the midst of very unsettling times. Peace is the fruit of knowing that God always is in control of his creation and that nothing 
in regards to his redemptive plan can be thwarted. After all, much like in the divine comedy, in his will is our peace. I do want to bring some sort of clarification to this because sometimes we think, oh, if God is in control, then that just encourages passivity or or we just stand around and doing nothing. We see evil maybe all around us and so, well, God is in control, so that doesn't require anything from me. No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what is being encouraged here. Passivity, what I'm saying is God's control doesn't encourage passivity. It encourages peace in the midst of our activity. So yes, we are still called to be representatives of Jesus Christ. We are still called to represent God and to, and to glorify him in our conduct, in our, in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our motives. But we do so with an absolute peace and trust that God will always accomplish his perfect and divine will. I think secondly, it's important to to also recognize that peace does not mean a lack of concern about alarming circumstances. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about maybe horizontal situations that we are experiencing in life, but it does mean that you can not be anxious, that, that you don't have to be restless in spite of these circumstances. That's why Jesus even says to his disciples before he goes to the cross, John 14, I'm leaving you a gift peace of mind and heart and the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give so he says so don't be troubled or afraid (laughs) if we could just if we could just camp on that one phrase so don't be troubled don't be afraid John 16 Jesus wraps up his final encouragement to his disciples in this world you will have trouble But take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. So no matter what current event we observe in the news, no matter what people do or don't do, we see that God's will and his purposes are being fulfilled. As we've said time and time again, from a redemptive standpoint, things are not falling apart. They're actually falling into place. Yes, our country may be changing, but only to ultimately fulfill God's redemptive plan. So it's hugely important that we, that we both perceive and we think biblically about reality. It's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to think biblically about horizontal situations. I love what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. You notice that none of this has to do with the news, right? If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and what's the, what can we expect? And the God of peace will be with you. Because in his will is our peace. 
But I want to also say a second point, and that is this, that supernatural peace is not just experienced by believing rightly. Yes, it's part of it, but supernatural peace is also experienced when we surrender fully to the will of God. And here's what I'm getting at. We can acknowledge right doctrine. We can, we can admit the, theology. We can say, I know that God is in control and that can bring some degree of peace, but I may not like it. In fact, I may fight persistently against it. Yes, I know God is in control. I know nothing's gonna thwart his plans, but I don't like how this is going on, God. And then we have to ask the question, have I actually surrendered fully to the will of God? To God's redemptive will. This brings us to our second final point, and that is this. And it's not that point up there. I changed my points even as of last night, so forgive me. The second point is a life that is surrendered is a life that is at peace. A life that is fully surrendered is a life that is at peace. You remember Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16? They're beat up and thrown in jail. There was no justice. They're shackled to the walls. What is their response? They're singing hymns and they're praying. And it says, and the prisoners were listening. Now what in the world would, would give them so much joy and peace and confidence and ultimately worship to God? How, how, why would they respond this way? Because they not only were convinced that God was in control, but they were fully surrendered to God's ordained plan for their life. And because they are fully surrendered, their perspective was this, if this is what God has ordained, then I will rejoice. It's why Paul was able to say in Philippians, in this context, rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. We see this scene in verses six through 13 of our text this morning where where, uh, it just provides an amazing picture, an amazing example of a life that is fully surrendered to God. Now, the the different gospel writers include different details, so I'm just going to draw some of those in. We see that John's gospel, this woman that is mentioned is actually Mary, not his mom, but Mary, Martha's sister. And we see that Mary pours out this very expensive perfume on the the head of Jesus. In fact, Mark's gospel said it was worth 300 denarii, which is about a a year's worth of wages for the average kind of blue-collar worker. And so you're thinking about Think, put that in context. Your whole entire annual income is in this little alabaster flask of perfume. Very rare, very expensive. And Jesus, or Jesus is experiencing the aroma of that because of Mary's gift to him. Of course, what she's doing, uh, it really kind of draws a lot of criticism. And Jesus' disciples, especially Judas, is actually, uh, they're actually indignant towards towards Mary for doing this because they're thinking like, you could have sold this for so much money. It's a, such a waste. And of course, Jesus says, this woman, that, what she's doing, Mary, she's gonna be talked about every time the good news 
is related to somebody else. Don't bother her. She's preparing me for my burial. But I believe what makes Mary's act of worship so profound, and listen to this, brothers and sisters, what makes her act of worship so profound is not because of the, not because the perfume was just expensive, but what makes it profound is what, it, what, we, what was required in order to anoint Jesus in this way. Again, Mark's gospel kind of gives this detail that Matthew does not. In Mark's gospel, we see that Mary had to break the alabaster flask in order to anoint Jesus. In other words, Mary didn't just pour a few drops on Jesus, you know, to kind of make him smell better and make the room smell better. No, I believe this imagery, this kind of the symbolism that we see is that she had to break it, she had to get rid of all of it. She had to use it all in that moment. It wasn't a partial anointing. It wasn't a partial act of worship. You see, Mary, she gave everything. She gave her most expensive possession, her most valuable possession. She gave it all to Jesus. She broke the vial, poured it on his head with no recourse about all the money she could have saved, all the poor people she could have fed, or anything like that. No, she loved Jesus that much. She was committed and surrendered to Jesus fully and completely. And I believe what we can learn from Mary's example is that the greatest gift that you and I can offer God is a life that is in full surrender. I believe this is, a, this is our genuine act of worship, right? Paul says this in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This idea of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice means we cannot be partial in our surrender. You don't, you're not partially a sacrifice. Either you're You don't partially die. Either you're dead or you're not. Either you're sacrificed or you're not. The imagery is important because here's the deal. God says when you come to faith in me, when you surrender your life to me, it is an all-in perspective, mindset, and act of the will. It is a total surrender ultimately to the will of God. This is our true worship. And ironically enough, this is also the place or the state of mind where we experience the greatest peace. Full surrender to the perfect sovereign will of God and the fruit you can bet on, that you can count on, is peace. As Jesus says, not peace that the world can give, the peace that I give. Does this describe you? Does this describe your relationship with God? Are you at peace? 
Are you resting in his sovereign control right now? Paul says it well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.